we went over some cohort studies. We gave one example in the video because it's one of the largest and also uh, one of the most, the most complete statistical adjustment models. And it followed half a million people over 16 years. Essentially people with cooking with canola had a lower risk of cardiovascular mortality than people cooking with butter. And then if you look at the canola and the olive oil, they look identical. The, the evidence certainly doesn't seem to support this idea that canola oil is giving us heart attacks and strokes and these things you hear on social media. There was uh, one trial that we included where everybody has had a fatty liver at baseline, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, so NAFLD, and then they were given olive oil or canola oil were the two exposures. And in both groups, there was an improvement in NAFLD metrics. Pretty impressive. Uh, 60 something to 70 something percent of participants went into the normal range for for, for the liver uh, metrics. Doesn't seem to compute at all with these ideas that it's making you metabolically sick, it's making you fat, it's making you diabetic. My shock with where the evidence is and where the social media discourse is and what people are being exposed to consistently from, from the majority of influencers and then what's been shown scientifically is almost night and day. When it comes to nutrition, there is little more controversial than seed oils. Within this category of plant-derived oils sits the notorious canola or rapeseed oil. Online, you'll find many likening canola oil to machine lubricant, claiming that it's highly inflammatory, causes cardiometabolic disease, and should be avoided like the plague. Is this well supported by the evidence? Do we really need to fear canola oil? That's what I explore in this conversation with Dr. Gil Carvalho. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones. And I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a longtime listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high fiber, plant rich diet for good long term health. And while I certainly believe in a food first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 Multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. 
The essential aid contains eight key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the optimal omega plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking optimal omega plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating two to three pieces of fatty fish per week, in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. To kick things off here, I'd love to know the rationale for the video you recently put up on canola oil. What inspired this? Yeah. Kind of like most of our content, it started with viewer questions. We just started getting a ton of questions about canola, seemingly out of the blue, about a year ago, maybe two years ago. Um, out of nowhere, people just started asking, canola, 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 is it true that it's poison, it's toxic? Is, it, is this stuff true? And uh, kind of caught us off guard. I didn't know where this was coming from. I hadn't seen this evidence for harm. So I was curious and we... At one point, the, 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 these questions were so consistent that we decided, all right, let's do a systematic uh, overview and see what the health effects of canola are according to the literature and make a video about it. Is it genuinely just a, a personal curiosity because of all of those comments were you that you were getting? And for full transparency, I guess... Were you engaged by any companies or industries that are tied to, to canola or was this solely an, an individual pursuit? Yeah, we have no uh, conflict of interests with any topic, any video. We have no sponsors. We decline all offers of sponsorship. We don't have any ties to any industry. We don't even have a Patreon account because that was the vision from the beginning to be completely independent and just tell people what's out there and let them make their own decision and not not introduce that extra level of concern or suspicion. Just have the communication channel be as clean as possible. So yeah, zero uh, financial or uh, marketing ties. I didn't even have uh, a strong opinion about canola going in because I have I hadn't done yet one of the this uh, systematic overview, and I didn't even have a personal preference. When it comes to canola, for cultural and geographical reasons, I was raised in the south of Europe. We canola is not canola oil is not common here. I think I was probably in my twenties or thirties when I first heard about canola oil, so I had no no opinion really. So it's not like you would be walking down the aisle of your grocery store and were always walking past canola oil and thinking, ooh. I'm going to steer clear of that and buying olive oil instead. You literally had no pre-held beliefs at all. No, not pretty much none. I, I never, I don't even remember seeing canola oil for, for sale or noticing it. Uh, my, in, in my family and in, in, in where I grew up, the, uh, eating olive oil is more common, but I had no, no strong views on, on whether canola was, healthier or as healthy or less healthy or detrimental really had no no strong opinions on it. I hadn't seen 
the evidence on um, on harm. Uh, I had seen some trials here and there, but few uh, generally seem to point to benefit or or safety. But sometimes you've seen a couple of things, and then you do a more comprehensive search, and you realize the balance of evidence is different. So that was certainly a possibility. Right. So if you were, before you had done this exercise, if you were forced to take a position as a scientist based on how familiar you were with the research at that point in time, and perhaps based on maybe what other scientists who you respect, some of their positions, you would have thought that canola oil was relatively neutral or perhaps beneficial. That that would have been your, I guess, hypothesis leading into this exercise rather blindly. Maybe based on the composition, since it's in the same ballpark as olive oil, if I had to guess before looking at the evidence, my guess would have been that the health effects would be similar. But uh, that sometimes we're surprised by, uh, by the health effects of foods that seem fine in terms of in biochemical terms. So I, you know, I, it wouldn't floor me if I had found some concerns or if I found uh, in some contexts, for example, not good or not as good as olive oil. So similar to olive oil, this brings up, I think, something that we should just hit early in this conversation is some of the definitions and just understanding what what it is we're talking about here. So uh, first and foremost, what is canola oil? And you know, olive oil, I think most people know, it's sourced from olives. Uh, canola oil has couple of different names that at least appear in the literature and perhaps on bottles in the in the in the store so what is canola oil and and where is it sourced from so it's sourced from a seed and they actually refer to the plant as rapeseed uh and so that's the other common name you'll see is rapeseed oil uh and the 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 word rape there has nothing to do with the crime it's actually uh the comes from the latin word for turnip because it's a relative of turnip and uh, Brussels sprouts and these these brassica family plants. And so the original rapeseed oil wasn't used for for food purposes because it was bitter and um, due to the content of erucic acid made it very bitter. And there was some evidence suggesting harm of erucic acid at high level. So what they did at some point was they bred this cultivar of the rapeseed plant where the seeds have a low content of erucic acid. And so that got rid of those problems. And then in Canada, initially, they, they started calling it canola. It's a contraction of Canada oil, low in acid. And that became popular in the U.S. Now it's often referred to as canola oil. In Europe, it's still referred to as rapeseed oil, even the the, the new version. Uh, in the UK, I think they still call it rapeseed oil. Uh, in Scandinavia, there's a number of countries that that use it. Interestingly, in, in Scandinavia, there's a number of countries that use it sort of like for Southern Europe, olive oil is the default. In Northern Europe, I think uh, rapeseed oil is the oil that they use for, for, uh, for food. Uh, so yeah, you find these different names uh, but that's essentially the uh, where it, where it's uh, obtained from, and then the the composition is essentially sixty something percent monounsaturated, but predominantly monounsaturated fat, seven percent saturated, 
the difference there with, with olive oil is olive oil is about 70-something mono, 14% saturated. And then for polys is the rest. So 28% in the case of canola and 20-ish for olive oil. No, uh, less, less probably around 10 for olive oil for, for poofas. So it is, by classification, it comes from a seed. So it would fall into this umbrella uh, bucket of seed oils. But, it, but in terms of fat profile, it's actually more like olive oil than it is to, say, soybean or corn or safflower oil, which are much lower in monounsaturated fats and contain quite a bit more omega-6 linoleic acid. Would that be accurate? Exactly. Technically, it's a seed oil, but... Uh, unlike most seed oils, it's much lower in linoleic acid. You mentioned that there was some selective breeding and that was done to make it a, a healthier food product. I think you mentioned an acid there. I, I forget the name that you use, but does that mean that this is erucic acid? Is that it? Yeah, yeah. Does that mean that it is genetically modified is it considered a, a gmo so that initial breeding process was not gmo it was just a natural breeding and selection nowadays and actually this started uh, probably 20 years ago or so they did develop a gmo version uh for the purposes of um you know to use pesticides it's resistant to pesticides so the monsanto roundup this it's resistance to, to glyphosate so depending on the country and on the brand, there are GMO versions and non-GMO versions. But so, yeah, that initial process was not related to GMO, but they have come up with the GMO version of the seed. Do you know much about the processing, how the, the seed is transformed into an oil or how the oil is extracted out and what is and, and perhaps isn't involved in that process? A little bit. So, so there's basically two types, right? There's the refined type and the cold press type. And the main difference is the exposure to heat. So in the cold press, they grind it and extract the oil without the heat exposure. And then in the refined kind, which is the more, the more common, common type that you'll find in stores, um, there is a heating process. Uh, there is a deodorization process. And they use these solvents, the hexane, uh, so there is a number of additional steps to the to the processing, to the to the refining, and the, the 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 heating. I think is probably the most relevant. The hexane. I think people ask questions about that as well, but but heating would probably be the number one difference there. Yeah, based on my read of the the claims that are made online from people who are of the view that canola oil is let's quote unquote toxic or harmful or something that we should minimize exposure to it usually comes back to three or four things and i think we've already hit on them one is that it's a seed oil and by default it it must be harmful genetically modified and then the processing so the fact that there's deodorization the involvement of hexane that it's heated would you agree that this is the basis of, of most of the, the claims that exist or have you seen people also pointing to specific forms of, of evidence to kind of support 
the idea that canola oil is toxic? I think that's that's pretty accurate. I think it all sits on the the idea of it not being a natural thing, of it being in a an artificial food. That I think is the basic idea, and it is very powerful uh, in terms of messaging. And I would and I wouldn't say that that's irrelevant either. And then I think most of these other concepts sit on it: the fact that it's refined, that there's exane added, that there that is heated, uh, the purification. All of this sits on this idea that it's an unnatural food, that our ancestors didn't need it, that it's new evolutionarily. It all stems from this idea of the what's natural and what's unnatural. Some people call it a naturalistic fallacy, but uh, the original concern, I think, is that. Uh, and then with the linoleic acid, I think there's, there's all these concerns with inflammation as well. There is this link to the biochemical pathway of linoleic acid being converted to arachidonic acid and so on to pro-inflammatory compounds, leukotrienes and prostaglandins and this, this kind of thing. So that's another uh, concern is that perhaps eating foods or a diet high in linoleic acid might lead to an elevation of these compounds, which then would lead to inflammation in the body. Right. And canola oil kind of enters that conversation because it it contains more linoleic acid than, say, olive oil or butter. Even though it has less than some of the other seed oils, it's still considered to contain, I guess, an appreciable amount. Or if someone's taking that position that linoleic acid would increase inflammation, I assume that what they're saying is you could cook with better fats than canola oil that contain less linoleic acid, said differently. So what... What would you say, Jill, if if someone said, look, I don't need any more information other than the fact that this is new, it's <laughs> ultra-processed, there, there may have been some um, selective breeding or GMO, it might be a GMO, um, there's, there's heating and deodorization and the use of these solvents like hexane, that's enough for me to know that this surely cannot be healthy. I don't need to be shown a meta-analysis or a bunch of meta-analyses or any studies. That's enough. Uh, at the level of individual choice, I don't, I don't think there's a problem there. If the person prefers or feels safer or feels more comfortable not consuming canola or, or, not, or not consuming any seed oils or any oils for that matter, some people prefer not to eat any oils at all and just get their fats from whole forms of, of whole foods. At a, as a, at a level of personal choice, I think that's completely fine. And it's not a problem nutritionally. You don't need canola oil in your diet. My concern is not that choice. My concern is basing firm beliefs on poor heuristics because sooner or later you're going to make decisions that are detrimental or potentially detrimental. And in fact, we see plenty associated with these ideas of seed oils. When people say, I avoid seed oils, I don't see a problem. The problem is that the same influencers and the same logic then leads to making choices like, so instead of seed oils, I lather butter, butter and lard on everything. So you get to things, once you make one decision that's based on emotion or these kind of, these kind of one-liner first glance ideas that don't pan out scientifically in terms of the actual health effect of the foods, you're going to be more prone to make all kinds of decisions in a chain on that logic. And so, for example, swapping 
unsaturated fats for predominantly saturated fats. There's so much evidence stacked against that uh, in the long run. Uh, we're talking about substantial amounts, right? If, you're, if you have a little bit of butter and your lipids are good, whatever. But people being scared of unsaturated fats and eating a lot of butter and lard instead uh, in a Western population is going to be a terrible decision. Uh, but if they prefer olive oil, if they feel safer with olive oil or almonds or whatever, I don't see a problem. Yeah, have at it. Okay, so you and your team decide to take on a topic like this. You decide, okay, <laughs> we're going to tackle canola oil despite all of the, the the trolling that might come with approaching a topic like this on YouTube. You're a brave man. Uh, where do you start? What does the research process actually look like when you you set out to investigate how a food like canola oil affects human health and, and whether it is something that we should be okay including in our diet or whether it's something that we should be minimizing our exposure to? So uh, first of all, I don't mind at all when people disagree and have different views because that actually I've learned with time. When I started making videos, when, when you're a beginner as a creator, you're terrified of, of uh, people who don't like your content. What I've learned with experience is that's actually a good sign. It's a sign that you're tapping into a diverse uh, crowd because if I publish a video and 100% of viewers say, I agree with everything you said, it's exactly my, 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 my thoughts exactly, I've added nothing. I've, had, I've, I've delivered no value, right? But if I publish a video going over 30 trials and I, get, and I have people pulling their hair out in the comments, Chances are I've, I've shown them, so, them something that they hadn't seen before, that they hadn't heard before. And the reactions to this video are among the most polarizing that we've ever had, uh, including cholesterol, saturated fats, statins. I think the seed oils topic, for reasons that I don't entirely understand, are more polarizing and more inflammatory, pun intended. Um, yeah. Yeah, we get people throwing hits in the comments um, over over these these trials, and yeah, so so we can talk about more about that. But so in terms of the the the, the process for a video like this, where we're pretty much trying to go over everything that's available and giving people an idea of balance of evidence, the main thing is we try to do it systematically. So what we want to avoid is showing people a pocket of evidence, and then they go they go click on the next video and it's a different pocket of evidence and people are just completely confused. Experts can't agree and all this stuff. So we want to give them a, an idea of balance of evidence to explain what's out there to the extent that it's possible. So um, the process is pretty standard. This is like what you do in research science. Every time you start a new research project, you, you try to get a glance of everything. You start with the, the top of the evidence hierarchy, meta-analyses, of trials, meta-analyses of cohort studies, systematic reviews. Get a, uh, a bunch of those, go through a bunch of those. Then you start to work your way down, start to look at individual trials, individual cohort studies. Uh, then we start to plug in the holes. So specific questions that the viewers might have, like what if it's cold-pressed canola oil? What if it's heated canola oil? That might not be specified in a meta-analysis. 
because it's very kind of bird's eye view. So then we start searching the databases for specific trials and studies on those questions to fill in the gaps. And then uh, sort of the final process is more just making sure, just uh, reassuring ourselves that we have a, a grasp. Uh, we go through um, kind of narrative reviews, especially more recent ones, and a bunch of them. And when we start seeing that their references are things that we already have in our notes, like we're familiar with the field, right? That gives us more confidence that we have an idea of, of, of everything that's out there. And then the final thing that we did for this video, I hired some people to research, not instead of me, but as a stress test of what I had done. So I didn't tell them what I found. I just gave them specific questions. So canola, effects of canola on insulin resistance. What's out there uh, in terms of trials or cohort studies in humans? And, and then see what they bring back and see if there's anything that I've missed. And so once that process, once we start to see a lot of repetition, then the confidence is there that we have a grasp on the balance of evidence, then we put things together. Yeah, you can begin to be quite confident that you've, you've been able to review this in an objective manner and you haven't missed anything when you're engaging other people to, to answer those questions as well. Um, why the focus on on human data over in vitro or animal studies? Uh, I think animal studies and in vitro data have their place. Actually, interestingly, my, my background is all in mechanistic research. My publications are, the vast majority are in mechanistic research. So in rodents and other animals and in cell culture and biochemistry, most of my scientific work has been in the, under that umbrella. So I'm certainly not biased against it, I, but I'm very, very comfortable stating where that fits and where it does not fit. And so I think it's mechanistic research is great for hypothesis generation. It's great for mechanistic insight to add more detail and another level of confidence when we have outcomes. But in terms of a bottom line for a, for a, a lay audience, Showing mouse research, unless I'm going to explain a contradiction, right? That's fine. If I'm going to try to explain why um, they might encounter this that may or may not match the data in humans, then that, that has value. Otherwise, if I'm giving them a, a, a first video on the effects of canola oil, I want to look at the human data because I assume they're interested in the effects of canola oil on themselves and their families. And that trumps the effects on... Um, on animals. Now, we, in the events where there are seeming mismatches between mechanistic data and outcome data or human data, we can often under understand why that is. It might be a dosage issue. A lot of times the research in animals and rodents is with a dosage that's much higher than the, the, in, the normal intake in, in humans. Sometimes it's purified molecules, concentrated um, and other times it's physiological differences between animals and uh, between other non-human animals and, uh, and us. But yeah, the bottom line for, for people watching is they want to know what's going to happen to them in all likelihood if they consume canola oil or not. And I think that's best uh, demonstrated by the human data. 
the, the last thing to say is that in, this, in a video like this, because there was a substantial amount of human data, I think that that goes over pretty well. In a field where there's none or almost none, and you have to make educated guesses from mouse data, then that might make more sense. But once you have, as as we'll probably cover, once you have, you know, hundreds of trials and cohort study after cohort study and meta-analyses of dozens of trials, uh, we got plenty. I just had Dr. Matthew Nagra and Dr. Alan Flanagan on, and we did an episode on lectins and the the uh, importance of the context of animal studies came up, particularly in this lectin conversation, exactly as you just said then, often in the animal studies, the dose that was used in those studies was um, not something that a human would be exposed to in a typical diet on a, a sort of gram per kilogram basis of body mass. And as you say, um, the form, a lot of those studies, in fact, almost all of them use isolated lectins as opposed to a whole food where lectins may behave completely differently when they're uh, within the context of whatever food or food matrix that they're naturally coming in. Um, So that's a a good reminder. Meta-analysis, remind people what that is and... I guess what the what the strengths are of of a meta analysis. Yeah, so meta analysis is a, is a study of studies. So you it, you can have a meta analysis of trials or a meta analysis of cohort studies, and basically it's a it's a way to get at balance of evidence. So you take say all the trials on a given question, and uh, you pool them together. You run some statistical analysis, and you're basically asking what's the general direction of the evidence. Uh, and so the strength is basically that you're, it's a higher bar, everything else held equal. So you're getting away from looking at individual trials. That might be a one-off or it might be some context, uh, some strange context or something weird that happened in one trial. And you're kind of forcing yourself to look at a, a broader data set. That's the main uh, upside. Obviously, there's still scrutiny that goes into a meta-analysis. Some are excellent, some are not so good. So you still have to quality control. Yeah. One of the critiques that I I hear people put forward about meta-analyses is that they're only as good as the individual trials that are included. And you quite often hear people say, you know, if you, if you pull, uh, aggregate junk data, then you still have junk data. <laughs> so is there, is there anything that you kind of keep in mind or you think about to determine if a, a meta-analysis is you know, high quality, it's made up of robust data as opposed to one that you know, sure has pulled several studies, but those studies themselves are low quality. So you do want to go through the trials ideally. Um, also, the number of trials that are included is, is relevant. Inclusion exclusion criteria for a meta-analysis matters. So some things are reasonable, some things are, you know, if there's a lot of cherry, you can cherry pick a meta-analysis by by fiddling with the inclusion and exclusion criteria. So uh, that that's important. Uh, and then there are there are different methods to to statistically analyze as well. Uh, and uh, and I think at the end of the day, for all of these things, the, the take-home message is reproducibility. So 
even at the level of meta-analysis, if it's one isolated meta-analysis, my confidence would always be somewhat more moderate. And I do want to see the same thing over and over at the level of trials and then at the level, level of meta-analysis. And that's when I, I start to be pretty confident that it's, it's something legit. Uh, yeah, so I think that's, that's the main, um, maybe the main currency and answers a lot of these questions. A lot of the questions about funding and a lot of questions about cherry picking, a lot of the questions about bias. If you have reproducibility, across different teams, different populations, across decades of research, using different experimental approaches, and you keep seeing the same answer. It doesn't have to be every time because we know there's heterogeneity, but you keep seeing the same direction of effect. Uh, our confidence goes up. That, that I mean, it's hard to overstate how important that is because a, a lot of times we get lost in the weeds and a lot of the, the concerns that people have is because this is not emphasized. And converging lines of evidence, which you, you sort of just spoke to there, but you know, meta-analyses of clinical trials, they're often shorter term. So maybe you see that there is improvement in certain blood lipids, but then the cohort studies, which are being carried out over 10, 20, 30 years, allow enough time to look at events, you know, heart attack, strokes, cardiovascular mortality, and you see the same exposure is associated with reduced risk of those events. And you can start to be, I guess, a little bit more confident in, in your position and the robustness of those findings. Um, when cohort studies come up, uh, I think there's this idea out there and there might be quite a bit of overlap actually between people that take the, the position that seed oils are toxic or canola oil is toxic. I think many of them may also believe that epidemiology is very unreliable and they when taking this position from from what i've seen they usually point to two things one is they point to confounding factors so um, is it that canola oil for example is reducing risk of cardiovascular disease or is it just that people who are consuming more canola oil also smoke less, uh, eat more fiber, etc., and such. Is it is the reduction in risk of cardiovascular disease actually explained by other aspects of their lifestyle? And then the second thing I see them uh, often point to is this idea that dietary recall, the the reliability of that is is very low, and you know because people are really poor at accurately telling us what they eat, how can these studies be, be useful? Um, so tell, tell me why you believe epidemiology and these cohort studies are important and why they're not unreliable and can actually form part of the evidence base in a, in a review like what you've just done um, here with canola oil. Well, first, just, just a general point that when someone says they don't believe epidemiology, I think that's fine if they're consistent with that. If it's a consistent heuristic uh, factor for them, I respect that. If they, they just, the, their bar is just very high, but there needs to be consistency. If you don't believe that epidemiology matters, then there's all kinds of things that you're going to have to discard, including a lot of effect of a lot, a lot of things on cancer that we take for granted, the effect of trans fats, is largely hinges on 
epidemiological research. There's lots of things that we pretty much take for granted. Effective, even things like exercise and a healthy diet in, in terms of uh, long-term outcomes, mortality and cancer, things that you can't realistically run a randomized trial. So as long as they're consistent with epidemiology not being reliable, I can respect that. If, but, if it, but if it's selective, if it's epidemiology doesn't count for seed oils, but then for other things, I hold a firm belief that these things are definitely good or bad, and they're mainly rooted in epidemiology in the first place, I question whether there's a, a strong heuristic there or whether it's an ad hoc decision-making process. That's just a general point. In terms of the specific uh, weaknesses of epidemiology, I think it's good to bear them in mind. I agree that they are soft spots. I think the realization is that every experimental approach has soft spots. Sometimes the, the misconception is that randomized trials are this perfect thing that you just frame in gold and you put on the wall. Randomized trials have plenty of uh, caveats as well. So these things were complementary. Um, with regards to the two specific ones that you brought up, I agree those are the, the two most common ones. So with the confounders, the way you address that is with statistical adjustment models and most of the common things that people ask, tobacco, BMI, exercise, these things are included. So you're trying to minimize the, the probability that the effect is due to, the, to one of those confounders. The adjustment is never perfect. So that's good to bear in mind and not overstate the results. In terms of the, the memory there is one clarification that might be useful. Sometimes people say on, on social media, well, I don't even remember what I had for lunch last week, let alone what I ate a year ago. That's not really how these, these um, questionnaires work. I, I, I agree, if, that's where, if that was the, the question, I don't remember what I had for breakfast a week ago. But if you ask me, how many cans of soda average do I consume in a day or in a week? How many steaks? in a week, how many bowls of oatmeal in a week? I can give you a very precise answer to those. Um, so just to, I'm not saying it's perfection and precision. I am saying it's very different from remember what you ate yesterday or, or a week ago, right? Um, so the other thing to, 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 to point out is there have been a number of analyses comparing uh, observational studies to interventional studies, so epidemiology to RCTs in terms of the results. And they generally support that most of the time, more often than not, they align. So this goes back to what we were talking about a minute ago, that it's about reproducibility. You would never look at an epidemiological study, even if it's robust, and immediately say, this causes that. But, so it, but that doesn't mean that it can't be part of the, the, uh, the causal inference the process of accumulation of evidence in a given direction that raises our confidence that there likely is a cause and effect relationship. And so epidemiology goes into that bag, randomized trials go into that bag with their weaknesses, with their strengths. And uh, the mechanistic data goes into that bag as well. Uh, the other thing to, to say just briefly is within epidemiology, there's different ways to ask the question. And so, for example, with seed oils, with, uh, with linoleic acid, you can ask people how much they ate, but you can actually, since it's an essential nutrient, you can measure their levels of linoleic acid in their tissues. And because it's all coming from the outside, your body doesn't produce it. 
that gives you another way to confirm that the intake data is generally, you know, in the right, the right, uh, in the right place. How do you know in that instance, though, if we're speaking here directly to canola oil, that the linoleic acid status is from canola oil and it's not from other oils? Yeah, you don't know that this wouldn't be a this wouldn't be specifically a confirmation of canola oil intake. This would be for, for linoleic acid in general. You couldn't I don't think you could differentiate between different sources of linoleic acid. It would be just for the specific question of linoleic acid as the exposure and the outcome inflammation or something else, which is a question that's asked in many um, in many studies. And so that's one way to to uh, to ask that now, if if you're running a trial, for example, this is another interesting thing. People don't realize that in randomized controlled trials, in the vast majority, you'll, you're still relying on self-report, with the exception of metabolic ward trials, which are which exist but are few and far between. You're still sending people home and then asking you know, asking them if they ate the thing they're supposed to eat. So. You know, there's always this level of uncertainty there. Um, but uh, with with a randomized trial, you can measure uh, different parameters, and you can get a sense depending on uh, on the nutrients at stake. You can get a sense that they are following the the recommendations based on these uh, these parameters that vary between the different intervention groups. Yeah, some great points there, particularly that point there about the biomarkers, and I'm I'm seeing that being done more and more. Uh, as a way of kind of verifying that the 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 dietary data that's being collected matches the status of some nutrient, um, and then Walter Willett, in my conversation with him, he also brought up a couple of important points that I might just tack on here. Many of the food frequency questionnaires, at least in a subset of subjects, have been validated against weighed food records, so. There is some verification that there is a high correlation between so when someone actually measures and weighs out all of their food and when they recall food using that tool, that questionnaire, that they're correlating very well. Um, so researchers will often you know, look to find a validated food frequency questionnaire that's been validated in a particular population relevant to whatever they're studying and then the second point that he made this is a little bit of inside baseball i guess and and not that relevant to people unless they're digging into these studies but if there's a 20 or 30 year follow-up it's nice to see that they have repeated dietary recall say every four years instead of just at in 1980 (laughs) did a food frequency questionnaire and then no further questions were asked over 30 years, a lot of those people would would have changed their dietary habits through that period. But it's all of these sorts of little things, I guess, that we can look at when we're reviewing the evidence to understand how um, that the, how the, the quality of the, the study that we're looking at and how much weight, I guess, to, to give those results or also may help us um, explain why there's varying results from, from different studies, some of these things. Another thing that, that might, uh, might help to point out is the difference between knowing uh, with precision exactly how many grams of this food cause risk versus the general direction of effect. 
So I think it is fair to, fair to say that there is less confidence with regards to granularity. If you want to know exactly how many grams of something give you a benefit or exactly after what threshold with precision causes a risk to pop up. I would agree that the, the gray area there is bigger, uh, but when you're looking at the general effect of a food, general direction of effect, is it uh, cardioprotective? Is it uh, damaging for cardiovascular risk? Does it uh, increase risk of diabetes? That I think the, the confidence is higher. And that gets around a lot of this precision aspect of somebody uh, you know, embellishes a little bit what they report or somebody forgets a little bit. Yes. But if, uh, if I eat seven steaks a week, I'm probably not going to say zero. I might say six or five. And if I'm a vegan, I'm probably not going to say 10 steaks a week. So you're going to get the general distribution is going to be there. The granularity might be a little off. If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, InsideTracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash livingproof to download your zero-cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash livingproof. Look forward to joining you on this journey.
before we step through the the evidence and the 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 conclusions that you've kind of come to based on that evidence at, at a high level would you say that this topic of canola oil and human health has been well researched in terms of the amount of data that's available the quality of data do we have enough information to feel pretty confident in the various positions that we'll be walking through today? Yes and no. I think there's a lot of research. There's a lot of trials and large cohort studies. I was surprised at how much there was. I would still say that there are areas of uncertainty that I certainly I could name 10 different things that I would like to see or 10 different trials. Uh, again, more around the edges of the details, like how if you heat it this much and if it's cold pressed versus uh, refined and if it's, you know, in the context of this food and that, I think there's certainly areas of uncertainty. Uh, but with regards to the, to the large points, uh, I thought there was a lot of research. The consistency uh, was very uh, surprising. Uh, I was above all shocked by the contrast between the amount and the direction of the scientific evidence and the discourse on social media. And having done this now for a few years, I am a little bit jaded, but I still, it still rocks me when I, when I see things so uh, almost like mirror images or you know, like opposites of, of what people are being told and then what the general direction of evidence is. It's still mind-blowing. So what was the general direction? Was it, was it generally neutral? Was it generally beneficial? Depends on the outcome, but general, generally uh, safety of consumption of canola, even in some of these contexts where people are more worried, like refined canola oil, cooked canola oil, in general, again, and we'll, we'll make some distinctions. We're not talking about canola in uh, an ultra-processed food and an uh, a highly caloric snack. We're talking about just canola on a salad or sautéing with it, using it, canola itself, uh, and using like home cooking, right? If you're going to fry it for five days in a row in an industrial fryer at Burger King, uh, all bets are off. But for regular use at home, I just kept seeing either no significant changes, safety, or benefit for the cardiovascular outcomes more in the direction of benefit for things like glucose metabolism more in the direction of neutrality yeah it depended on the on the outcome there wasn't a, a five-day burger king fry up study in there uh yes and no i did find studies exposing canola oil not at burger king necessarily but to long exposures of of heat and uh and by the time you've, you 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 heat it for days, we're talking three, four days in a row, you start to see the trans fat content go up. Uh, but short of that, even studies looking at pretty long exposures that I don't think would be recommended anyway, like several hours of cooking. And some studies are <laughs> try to push the envelope, baking for a long time at such high temperatures that the food starts to burn, uh, past the smoke point, you start to see smoke come out of it, and they still don't detect an, a statistically significant increase in trans fats. Uh, 
so yeah, within the realms of, uh, of a reasonable use, I just don't see, and I'm open to other evidence and I'm open to whatever, but I, I just don't see the justification for the, the stampede. Okay, let's step through some of the specific evidence, starting with cardiovascular disease, which you just mentioned. What do we know about canola oil consumption and how it affects important blood lipids that increase the risk of cardiovascular disease? So there are dozens of trials, randomized control trials, looking at the effect of canola oil on blood lipids and comparing them to other fats. So, uh, and then there are many meta-analyses that agglomerate all of this and look at the, the general picture. So one meta-analysis that we focused on in the video, because I thought it was interesting because they look at head-to-head comparisons with other fats. So the comparator is very clear, and that's, as we all know, crucial for nutrition. Uh, so it was a meta-analysis of 42 randomized control trials. And the, the, the four types of fat they used were canola, olive oil, sunflower seed oil, and then higher saturated fat foods like butter. And basically, when, you can, when they compared uh, trials looking at canola versus olive oil, LDL cholesterol was a little lower on canola in average. But then ApoB, which I assume your viewers are familiar with, uh, as a better metric, a more reliable metric of cardiovascular risk, no significant difference between the two. We can argue if that's statistical power or, or what that is, but that's the result. Then canola compared to sunflower seed oil, identical. LDL cholesterol a little lower in canola, no significant difference with ApoB. And then canola compared to the saturated fat high foods, both LDL cholesterol and ApoB reduced on canola, and actually triglycerides uh, significantly reduced as well. So that's the data for the markers. It looked like you had a question. Yeah, Jill, if... if- someone has elevated ApoB and they're, they're wanting to lower that through some dietary changes, you know, something that many guests on this show, and, and I think you're one of them that we've spoken about, is the substitution of saturated fats with polyunsaturated fats being particularly helpful. And based, based on the canola oil fat profile, it has more polyunsaturated fats than olive oil. So would, would the assumption be that it, would, it could be more helpful than olive oil as a substitution for, say, butter for someone who's looking to lower ApoB? Um, I know you mentioned a study there and you said maybe it's statistical power, but where are you leaning towards in terms of lipid optimization for someone that is uh, wanting to lower ApoB are they reaching for canola or are they reaching for olive oil or are they reaching for one of these other seed oils that's higher in polyunsaturated fats again? Yeah, based on the result of the meta-analysis, I don't, I don't have a, a strong belief in superiority. So it seems that if there is a difference, it doesn't seem to be very large. It's possible that canola oil... I've seen one isolated trial where canola oil lowered ApoB more than olive oil. But because it's not a consistent enough finding to reach significance in the meta-analysis. And this could be because it's a small number of trials. Uh, ApoB is a, le- a less common measure 
to be reported than LDL cholesterol. So it could be that it's just been re- not be reported as much. But I would say unclear. Um, so either one, if you're going to replace butter with either one, I would expect a drop. Uh, experimenting would also not be unreasonable, seeing maybe there's an individual difference. Uh, and then obviously there's other other changes to diet and uh, and exercise and other lifestyle components that could be done. But yeah, that's that's pretty much where I stand. Were there any studies looking at canola oil versus nuts and seeds with regards to weight loss? This is probably where this comparison is most relevant given the calorie density of oils. I know, for example, people like Dr. Joel Furman, who I've had on the show, uh, is wary of oils because of their calorie density and believes nuts and seeds are perhaps a better way to get fats without exceeding calories. Yeah, we, we looked for that specifically. We could only find one with canola specifically. Uh, they compared nuts to canola oil. And there are some experimental caveats there. Uh, it was a canola oil that they mixed with a oats, oats-based cereal. Uh, I think the, I think because of uh, uh, because of methodological reasons, if you just give people the canola, they're probably going to use that instead of another fat. So we might introduce another confounder. So they they created the cereal with high in canola and told people to replace the cereal they were eating for breakfast with that one. And then uh, they they report that the caloric content was a, was about even. So they kind of satisfied themselves that it was an even swap. So uh, this, there's some things that could be pointed out there, but bottom line is in that trial, so it's nuts versus this canola oil uh, medium. And they measured a lot of different parameters from lipids to glucose metabolism parameters, uh, body mass and body weight, uh, I think blood pressure, no significant difference in any of them. Uh, so it's just one trial. So I would be cautious, not overstating that. We actually have a video coming soon where we went over every trial and every any study that we could find comparing oils to nuts and seeds for any kind of oil. And uh, we could we found maybe a dozen or two dozen total. So not a lot. There's definitely, it's fair to say that there's some uncertainty there. And with canola, this is the only one that I remember. Um, but like I said before, I, if someone feels safer eating uh, almonds or walnuts or flax seeds, I don't see a problem with that. Is there any early insight from that video? Is that the general trend that based on the studies that exist, there doesn't seem to be a significant benefit either way, swapping uh, equivalent calories from a, an oil, plant oil, non-tropical oil, I'm assuming, for nuts and seeds? Pretty much. There's some heterogeneity in some in some studies you see a seeming advantage of one and others another, but overall no clear superiority. And so and I don't have a very strong opinion on this, but I haven't seen clear data either way. So uh, I don't see a problem if people choose. I think it's my 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 issue is when people make confident claims and the evidence is just not there, when they say it was definitely this one is definitely going to be better because X, Y, Z. If the evidence A doesn't exist or even worse exists and doesn't support that, 
why would you have a, a strong belief in that direction? But this is more uh, a disagreement with other communicators and not so much with the public. If, if people are more comfortable getting their fats from whole forms of fat, I, I wouldn't even want to confuse them by going over these trials. Because I, I, I just don't think it's an important question in terms of nutrition science. I don't want to digress too much. So I'll ask one question here. But uh, in those studies where we're comparing an oil with nuts and seeds, how important is the the dose that we're we're considering here? Because it, it might be that a, at a very small dose or exposure, there's no significant difference, but at a at a higher dose or a higher uh, number of calories coming from either oil or nuts and seeds that you begin to see a difference. Is that something that you considered? It's certainly possible. And I think we made that video a while back. I don't remember the details, but I think we we did we do have uh, a note about that with, with some trials that have higher intake. I'm pretty sure we talked about it. And I don't remember the exact, how, how high it went. Uh, but I think that's a very reasonable caveat that you can all, and you can, that goes for any question. You can always say, okay, in this range that has been tested, this is the evidence, but we don't know what happens at a higher or lower range that hasn't been assayed. I think that's always reasonable to, to say. So, but again, as a note of uncertainty, not a note of, therefore, this thing is definitely superior. Coming back to canola oil, was there any difference between refined and unrefined canola oil on blood lipids? So we looked at that specifically because a lot of viewers asked that question. Most trials don't specify which type of oil they use, which is annoying. But we did find a couple that specified it was refined canola oil. And we were able to get in touch with the authors of, of one or two trials as well that clarified that it was refined that they used. And so bottom line is we still saw the same direction of effect, even with refined canola oil of either no significant difference or a reduction in, in blood lipids. Uh, and even when it was used to cook, same direction of effect. Now, I've never seen a trial, I don't think it exists, that compares in the same trial unrefined and refined canola oils head-to-head. It would be really cool to see. I, don't, I, don't, I haven't seen it. Um, so I'm open to the possibility that there's an edge for one of them, but I haven't seen any evidence of that. What about canola oil consumption and hard cardiovascular disease outcomes like the risk of having a heart attack or a stroke or dying from cardiovascular disease? Yeah. So we went over longer data sets because the trials are great, but the problem is they're usually short, shorter term. So we went over some cohort studies. We gave one example in the video because it's one of the largest and also uh, one of the most, the most complete statistical adjustment models. And it followed half a million people over 16 years. And essentially, people with cooking with canola had a lower risk of cardiovascular mortality than people cooking with butter. And then if you look at the canola and the olive oil, they look identical. Um, there were some other comparators as well, um, margarine and some other stuff. I think corn oil was in there. But certainly between those two, that was the pattern. Uh, and then it was adjusted for all the common uh, confounders that people ask about, BMI, exercise, tobacco. They actually tried to adjust for other foods as well. So 
overall dietary pattern was in the model and it still survived those adjustments. So like we said before, this doesn't give me 100% confidence, but it's it's what can be done, right? And the direction of effect is, is uh, concordant with the data from the trials. So I certainly, the, the evidence certainly doesn't seem to support this idea that canola oil is giving us heart attacks and strokes and these things you hear on social media. You did speak about one long-term randomized controlled trial, if I recall correctly. I think you, you mentioned Leon Diet Heart Study in your video. Yeah. What's the, what's the significance of, of this study and, and why did you feel it was important to include it? I guess, even though it's not just a, a canola oil intervention. Uh, yeah, we, we brought up a couple of multi-pronged interventions where they used canola. I think it's part of the evidence base, but we were pretty careful to state the, the caveat that because multiple things change, we can't say that the benefit is coming from canola. Uh, but clearly it's consistent, a Mediterranean diet with canola oil. Uh, in Lyon, they used both. They used a mix of uh, olive oil and canola. Uh, and it's it's the strongest risk reduction in terms of cardiovascular outcomes for a, a dietary uh, randomized trial that I've ever seen. 70% reduction in MACE, 70% reduction in mortality. Uh, so... It's again, does this tell me that it's canola delivering the benefit? No, but it certainly doesn't seem to support these ideas that canola is killing everybody and it's you might as well drink sewer water and whatever else is being yelled on social media. What would you say to someone that looks at the Leon Diet Heart study and says, Jill, I, I hear what you're saying, but this is in comparison to a pretty crummy diet, it's it's not the ancestral paleo diet that I'm eating. I think that's as reasonable, not necessarily the ancestral paleo part, but the uh, the comparator is a, is a reasonable point. So Lyon, the comparator was a the regular diet, the regular, in this case, the French diet. Uh, so other there are other uh, trials of the Mediterranean diet that are better in that regard, like Predomat and Cordiaprev, where the other the comparator was also an intervention. So I think it's valid that Lyon, I think it's another caveat of Lyon that the comparator diet is uh, is not the cleanest. So yeah, that could certainly be a, a part of why the the risk reduction is so, so uh, impressive. What about insulin resistance and glucose metabolism? Was there, was there much evidence that was looking at how canola oil affects blood glucose control? Yeah. Uh, also, dozens of trials looking at glucose, looking at insulin levels, looking at insulin resistance, and uh, just to state that the, the lar this, this largest meta-analysis, uh, basically no significant difference in any of those three metrics uh, comparing canola oil to olive oil, saturated fat, and uh, sunflower seed oil. Uh, and that, in and then with refined canola. Similar, so try, we found one or two trials with refined canola looking at glucose metabolism metrics and uh, no significant change in fasting glucose. Insulin and insulin resistance actually were reduced compared to baseline on the canola oil group. Uh, similar with the cooked trials, again, 
either no significant difference or reduced. One interesting thing that that we found, one, one trial that used um, refined canola oil, we were talking about contrast of exposure before, and one trial used a massive amount, was over 400 calories of canola oil a day on the canola group, which is 20, 25% of calories from canola oil. And they still didn't see any detriment in terms of the metrics of glucose metabolism that they that they measured. So again, I don't see the the, the, the rationale for this this logic that these oils are making everybody insulin resistant and in debt and diabetic and these things you hear out there. If anything, the evidence seems to be pointing in the opposite direction. We know that total calories and energy excess is the most important driver or seems to be the most important driver of visceral and ectopic fat, fat between and inside our organs, particularly the liver, the pancreas and muscle tissue, and that this increases insulin resistance, makes it harder to get glucose from the, the blood into the cells where it can be used for energy. You and I have spoken off air about the impact of dietary fat on insulin resistance, specifically the type of fat that we're consuming. What's your position here? If you equate calories, I've seen some trials that point to a, to a role definitely secondary to overall calories. And it seems that it's mostly in the context of, an, of a hypercaloric diet. So yeah, if you're in a hypercaloric state, uh, unsaturated fats may be a bit kinder on the, on the intrahepatic triglyceride accumulation. By the time that you get to isocaloric or hypocaloric, I think it's more granular. Uh, and certainly if people are losing weight, I think it's very common for them to see improvements in fatty liver and insulin resistance, pretty much regardless of their source of fat. So I think that's that's an argument that I, I think loses a little bit of strength if people are losing weight. Now, you can't lose weight forever. So at some point, you still have to contend with uh, what's your maintenance diet. But yeah, I think it's certainly secondary to uh, calorie balance. Speaking of losing weight, I know that you looked at canola oil and body weight. Are, are people making claims that canola oil is inherently fattening? Is that something that you've seen? Uh, I, I confess that I consume surprisingly little social media content for, for a YouTuber. Uh, I've seen a few videos and I've definitely seen those claims very, very prevailingly uh, about seed oils in general. I don't remember specifically about canola oil. Canola oil is making us fat. I have no doubt that we, we would be able to find if we've searched TikTok. Uh, but yeah, I haven't seen anybody make that distinction. Oh, seed oil makes us fat, but, but canola doesn't. What did you find there? Uh, yeah, uh, kind of similar. We There are dozens of randomized trials. We've highlighted a meta-analysis of 23 randomized control trials where they actually found that canola oil reduced body weight. Uh, and the effect was very small, so I don't want to overemphasize that. Uh, the, the effect actually seemed more marked when comparing to saturated fat, more marked in people with diabetes. That said, I'm, I'm skeptical that that's a even that it's a real effect, let alone a clinically meaningful reduction. They had other metrics in the same meta-analysis, 
so this was body weight thing was reduced, but BMI, waist circumference, body fat, all no significant change. So my takeaway is that there doesn't seem to be a big difference. Um, and again, the caveats, the obvious caveats, we're talking about canola oil itself. We're not talking about junk food that happens to contain canola oil together with a thousand other ingredients and is hypercaloric and hyperpalatable, the potato chips and the Pop-Tarts and whatever else. And the other caveat is that anytime you're talking about a concentrated source of fat, whether it's saturated or unsaturated, yeah, it's hypercaloric. So if you're lathering it on top of your regular diet, you're going to gain some weight. But if your overall caloric intake is reasonable, you can lose weight on a high cal on a high fat diet. So uh, I think those are those, that's not a that's not a that's not something that's going to make you fat magically. I think this is where the compared to what also comes up with regards to nuts and seeds, and uh, I think many people are of the view that if if there was a trial, and I'm not sure if there if there is a trial that's looked at this, so ad lib where you have one group that is told to um, consume canola oil, whether it's in cooking or on salads, and another group is told not to have canola oil, but they can have nuts and seeds, and it's ad lib. So we're not equating calories. Do the people who are using canola oil in their cooking and on their salads in their meals, do they gain more weight than the person who is getting their fats from a whole food source, nuts and seeds? Yeah, the only trial that might get at that question that I've seen is that the one with the cereal mix. And they they didn't find any difference in uh, body weight or BMI or any of those things. But I don't remember off the top of my head if it was calorie matched or not. I know that they were getting about the same amount of calories from the meals, but I don't remember if that was forced upon the participants or if that was ad lib and they just ended up eating the same. So, yeah, I think it's a valid question, and I think it might also vary from person to person. Someone might add a lot of oil and end up gaining some weight, and and someone might the, – the, the opposite might also be true. Some people might, might find the oil not that appetizing, whereas the nuts might just disappear. I certainly get that uh, people telling me that, that they have to really be careful with the nuts because they, they start eating and the bag disappears before you notice. Um, so, yeah, uh, I think it's certainly possible. Yeah, good tip. If that is you, someone who can sit down and demolish an entire bag of nuts, which certainly is the case for me, is to use the nuts as salad toppers or in smoothies, and that way you can kind of control how many or how, how much you're consuming in a serve a little better. Another claim that's very common when it comes to seed oils is that they are inflammatory. I know you looked at inflammation. What did you find with regards to canola oil and whether this is pro-inflammatory or not? Yeah, we found uh, a number of trials as well, meta-analyses that go over a couple of inflammatory markers. And so, for example, the meta-analysis of 42 trials reports CRP, and there was no significant difference also between canola oil and the comparators. 
we found also some, some of the trials with refined canola oil uh, also report inflammatory markers and there also no significant increase. And then the other thing uh, that's worth mentioning is this temporality aspect because maybe eating it for a couple months doesn't raise inflammation, but eating it for years does. Um, certainly the, the linoleic acid, the, the main thing that people worry about in regards to inflammation, the main component of seed oils, there's long-term data on it. And if anything, people that eat more linoleic acid have lower inflammatory markers. So again, I think there's lots of things that could be done and lots of trials that could be tried and, and lots of things that I would love to see permutations, but I don't see the support for the idea that, that it's inflammatory. And we have a whole video from like a year ago going over inflammation and all of these seed oils systematically from flax all the way to safflower, running the gamut of, of linoleic acid content. And there is just an overwhelming balance of evidence against the idea that they're pro-inflammatory. So that's that's the evidence that that is out there that I've seen. If if future evidence goes against that, very well. I'm glad to change my mind, but I don't see the support. I had Philip Calder on my show a few weeks back who has been researching omega-6 and omega-3 fats for 30 plus years at this point. And he he made a point that many of the studies looking at linoleic acid are interventions that have added linoleic acid to a baseline diet that often contains an appreciable amount of linoleic acid to begin with. And he he kind of made a caveat. He said he'd like to see some studies that do this in reverse and sort of lower linoleic acid in the diet rather than adding it to see if inflammation may go down. And the idea being that perhaps people at baseline are already exceeding some type of important threshold and already that that inflammation is there. In your video, you mentioned an interesting trial. I think it was it was specific to canola oil that did a wash-in diet with without any vegetable oils uh, in a way to, to kind of reduce the likelihood that subjects already had elevated inflammatory markers from their baseline diet. Am, am I getting that right? Yeah, it's a... It's a trial that was uh, conducted in Germany. I think Mario Kratz is actually an author on that, interestingly. So we can, we can ask him about the details. But um, yeah, the, the, the strong points of that trial are that it used a wash-in diet and also it was a, a healthy young population and European, if, if that means healthier. Uh, but they, they specify healthy students. I think they were college students and it was, it was German students. So it's not like it was middle-aged Americans that are obese or anything like that. Now, uh, some caveats as well to that trial. It was it was kind of short. The, the wash-in diet, I think, was a couple of weeks. And then the exposure to the oils was maybe a month. Uh, and another caveat is they, there was weight loss on, on all of the oils, which, again, argues against the fattening role of these oils. But... But makes it a little harder to interpret the inflammatory marker data because weight loss is a powerful anti-inflammatory stimulus. But, but um, briefly, what they did is for the wash-in, they put people on a high saturated fat diet. 
about 20% of the calories were coming from saturated fat. And then they, they split them into three groups. And the exposure oils were canola, olive oil, and sunflower seed oil. And then they let it go for another period of time. And the, yeah, the, the, the inflammatory markers, if anything, trended down during, during the exposure on all three groups. No, no statistical significance, though. So essentially no, no significant difference during the exposure. And again, that trend down is confounded by the weight loss. But yet again, I don't see evidence that these oils are inherently pro-inflammatory. If other trials and other contexts show that, great. So far, I haven't seen it. What about lipid peroxidation? And, wh and what is this? And, wh and why does this come up? you know, when people are talking about seed oils? Yeah, it's a oxidative degradation of lipids in general. And I think the, the reason it comes up is because it is true that unsaturated fats are more prone to oxidation, at least when they're isolated in a test tube. I don't think that's controversial and it has to be to do with the double bonds. Now, the question is, does that pan out in the context of the oil where there are other components? And then the main question is, does that pan out in a living, breathing human consuming the oil? So I think those are all good questions. Uh, so we went through a couple of trials. There's a couple of trials in humans giving people canola oil, using, for example, saturated fat as a comparator, and then measuring oxidation products in bodily fluids. Uh, one of them is the, these category, this category of chemicals called isoprostanes which are oxidation byproducts. They measure them in urine. They measure them in plasma. They used a couple of different techniques to satisfy themselves and no significant increase in these products with exposure to canola, even when uh, it was used to cook. And then another product of lipid oxidation that people often ask about is 4-HNE. Pretty common to hear that. So we tried to look for that specifically, studies measuring that compound in canola oil, and it was undetectable with canola oil off the shelf and very low production, even after exposure to several hours of, of heat. Uh, it might have to do with vitamin E, which is an antioxidant uh, that is pretty high in these seed oils, and that might be the reason to explain why these, they are prone to oxidation by themselves, but they seem more resistant in, in the context of the oil. Uh, another thing to, to mention, and this is getting a little bit more into the weeds, but there is an, an in vitro assay that in some trials indicates an increase in, uh, in oxidation products with exposure to canola, and it's called T-bars. And it's a pretty common assay to, to find in papers. And it's, it's a, basically a test tube or a kind of a lab plate assay where you run a reaction in the plate and then you measure colorimetrically. And so there seemed to be, at first glance, this discrepancy between that, that in vitro assay and the in vivo data. And we dug more to see if we could figure out why, why that was. And we found a fair amount of literature in that field, like this, this pretty specialized uh, nerdy literature going over the, the caveats of that assay. And it seems that 
it's just very nonspecific. So it's prone to artifacts. It picks up, it reacts with many molecules that are not uh, lipid oxidation products or even lipid related. It can react with carbohydrates, with amino acids, with uh, even DNA. So it's good and it's sensitive for preparations that are purified lipids, for example. But once you have a more complex mixture, like in a bodily food, like in urine or blood, where you have protein, you have cells, you have uh, carbohydrates in there, it just gives all kinds of, uh, of signals. So it's been criticized in the literature. Now, happy to, to hear, to be contradicted by people who uh, run these trials for a living, if that's, if that's wrong in any way, but this is pretty consistently what we found. And would the relevant, I guess, human health outcomes here be cardiovascular disease? Are we coming back to that, those meta-analyses of the long-term cohort studies that show a reduction in risk of cardiovascular disease? Yeah, I think, I think oxidation you could tie to almost any disease. Uh, you could certainly tie to, uh, to cardiovascular. You could tie to diabetes. You could tie to cancer for sure. Uh, and we've... We, we found, we, we discussed in the video one, actually it's the same cohort study, the one with half a million people. Uh, people cooking with canola seem to have lower cancer mortality than people cooking with butter. So it doesn't seem to compute there either that, that it's just oxidating you to high heaven and turning you into a, a lump of coal. Uh, the other thing that's, that's, important to bear in mind in terms of big picture, which is what you're very uh, astutely getting to, is that these, these uh, inflammatory markers and oxidation markers, these things are relevant, but we shouldn't miss, uh, lose, lose track of the, uh, of the big picture because we know that, for example, with exercise, inflammatory markers go up acutely and lipid, lipid peroxidation can be induced by exercise. So, we just have to be careful with the logical leaps. This molecule went up, therefore, the intervention is to, is, po is poison. Just a little bit of care, care, a little bit of caution, and look at the outcomes of people actually eating the food or performing the activity. Right, and it comes back to logical consistency, I guess. Again, you made that point earlier, but if if you're going to take the view that a mechanistic study that shows an increase in oxidation automatically means that this food is problematic and we should avoid exposure to it, then a similar similar logic is to look at exercise, as you just said, and acutely see an increase in oxidation and disregard all of the long-term data that shows exercise is associated with a reduction in risk of disease and take the position that we should not exercise. I think the key here is that we have to come up with a system that we are comfortable with, a heuristic system. So if your bar is that epidemiology doesn't count, as long as you're consistent with that across, if your bar is that you look at mechanisms and mechanisms trump outcomes, that's a strange bar. But if that's your bar, you have to be consistent with that across. The problem is doing this ad hoc and kind of gerrymandering data. I think a lot of times we see people working backwards. They decide first which foods they like or which foods they think are good and bad and which activities are good and bad. And then they try to back rationalize the data. And that's where we see all this inconsistency. 
Was there any data looking at liver fat or risk of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease? Yeah, there was uh, one trial that we included where everybody has had a fatty liver at baseline, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, so NAFLD. And then they were given olive oil or canola oil were the two exposures. And in both groups, there was an improvement in NAFLD metrics. Pretty impressive, uh, 60-something to 70-something percent of participants went into the normal range for, for, for the liver uh, metrics. So again, doesn't seem to compute at all with these ideas that it's making you metabolically sick, it's making you fat, it's making you diabetic. Just trial after trial, outcome after outcome, if anything, pointing in the opposite direction. And this is what I was talking about when I, when I said kind of my shock with where the evidence is and where the social media discourse is and what people are being exposed to consistently from, from the majority of influencers. And then what's been shown scientifically is almost night and day. And what about just death from, from any cause? So total mortality in those long-term cohort studies, particularly the ones that, and again, this is not specific to, to canola, but the ones that have the biomarker data and look at linoleic acid tissue levels. Was there much signal there? Is there an effect on, I guess, firstly here to separate these, is there an effect on linoleic acid consumption or tissue status and total mortality? There is an association between linoleic acid uh, tissue levels and both cardiovascular and all-cause mortality in meta-analyses of observational studies. And then, again, going back to that large cohort study with canola, where people were cooking with canola, they had lower all-cause mortality, again, associated with cooking with canola. Uh, so, again, caveats there, I wouldn't jump to cause and effect, but where's the evidence of toxicity? So just to emphasize that first point you made there is that the higher the linoleic acid tissue levels... Again, that's that's an omega-6 that is essential. So it has to have come into the body through diet. The higher those levels in tissue, in fat stores, in fat stores, the less risk someone had di- dying from all causes and from cardiovascular disease. Yeah, and I've definitely seen a, a large meta-analysis showing the cardiovascular mortality. With the all-cause mortality, I forget if it's a cohort study or a meta-analysis of cohort studies. And another thing that I've I've uh, I've had people ask me recently about the different tissues: uh, is it the plasma level or the level in the erythrocytes or the level in the adipose tissue? And they pretty much align. You might find, depending on the on the analysis, you might find that one trends and doesn't quite reach statistical significance. And the other one does. And then for the other uh, outcome, it might be the other way around. But in general, they align pretty well. The direction of the effect is the same. You see statistically significant inverse correlations between levels in adipose tissue and cardiovascular mortality and all-cause mortality in different studies. So there doesn't seem to be, again, maybe the granularity, uh, we can find some 
some context dependence there, but there doesn't seem to be a clear uh, difference where one is completely uh, in the opposite direction. Seed oils can always be a pretty emotionally charged topic. How has the canola oil video been received by your community? Uh, it's all over the map, all the way from people celebrating it and going, finally, I'm tired of these influencers yelling that this is poison, all the way to you're killing people. What are you doing? Uh, I mean, just just all over the place. I think more 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 polarizing than even some of the other topics that we thought were very polarizing. One thing that we that we've seen consistently that I thought was very interesting is people commenting that why even show these results? Why even go through the science when we already know these foods are poison? So it's kind of this this logic. We've seen this over and over uh, that. At first, I thought, man, this is a complete inversion of logic. But then I thought, this is actually very candid and very revealing, what people are telling me. Uh, I had one, one comment that I even pulled up to tell you. I won't name names, but it says, you are probably the only YouTube channel that says seed oils are okay, compared to other 99 doctors that say to stay away from this inflammatory, highly processed fat. Uh, bear in mind, this isn't... This isn't being commented on a video where, where you go over the inflammatory data and does, it's not there. But these notions are so strong that people will still state the same thing, even though they've just watched the kind of the inverse. And then it says, this is the best part. The studies are there to support your claim, but I'll stay away from these oils for now. It's just like the aspartame studies. Many studies suggest it's okay and better than sugar, but I would still stay away from it. So I think it's a very honest insight into how people form their views that the evidence is fine, but that alone doesn't tilt them. There is an emotional aspect. There is an, an aspect of this is an unhealthy or this is a, an unnatural food. So just showing me these data doesn't, isn't quite convincing. And then the aspect of repetition. You are exposed to the same message over and over and over mercilessly all day long on podcasts and social media for, by 99 doctors, as he said. And then here comes one rogue channel that says, actually, here's the evidence and it's the opposite. So we see a lot of this kind of uh, borderline angry and frustrated people trying to make sense of, the, of these different messages and this cognitive dissonance. Uh, and that's where a lot of the times the, the funding comes in and, well, who's paying you? Why are you saying this? And these attempts to, to organize their thoughts, right? Then you can sense the kind of this anxiety to, to make sense of things. So, yeah, I've come to, to, to be at peace with all of this because I understand people don't change their minds the first time they hear something. And that's actually good. If they did, it would, it would just flip-flop like crazy. They've heard the same thing over and over for months or years. Now they hear you. One, one random guy say the opposite. They are skeptical, and rightly so. Um, so I would hope they go through the evidence or they they, they uh, question what they've heard before and question what I say as well and then examine the, the facts. Have you had many comments from people who have said, wow, 
you've you've changed my mind. You've changed my perspective. I, I can't believe I used to think that canola oil was toxic, and that you know I must avoid it. Yeah, yeah, several, uh, all the way from just be, some people just kind of surprised. Wow, I I had never heard of all this, and I always heard that there that it's poison. You know, where was all this, or why? Why a lot of this also? Why aren't all these other people showing me this? And certainly, some people saying, "Okay, you know, this is compelling. Uh, my mind has changed." I would say everything across the spectrum, from go away to thanks to my mind has changed to now I know you're a crook to you know <laughs> everything you can imagine. A lot of a lot of that too. Um, now you've lost all your credibility. Uh, yeah, and a, and a lot of. Just why even why even tell people about this? You're going to confuse people and and get them to eat these toxic foods. So why show this evidence of benefit, which is a really interesting way to look at it. It's also interesting to think about that idea that you know, 99 doctors are saying it's it's toxic, and and you're the one doctor saying that it's it's not. That might be representative of a, a, a kind of echo chamber that someone's found themselves in, but it wouldn't be representative of academics and scientists, for example, who are working on writing guidelines. Yeah. And when when people say this, you're the first channel or you're the only channel saying these things, it surprises them, but it's by design. That's by design that, that they're encountering this content coming from us because I don't make content on things that people are already getting messages uh, that align with the evidence because it offers no value. But it's these things that I see people coming with with a question that doesn't reflect the science at all. This is where we try to focus. All these confusion, these uh, these different uh, misconceptions with cholesterol and all the stuff with saturated fat that doesn't reflect the scientific evidence. That's what our content focuses on. So yeah. I think it's exactly the clash between what most scientists in this field would say and what they hear on social media. That's the clash that I'm seeing, but that's exactly what we're trying to uh, to deliver. And I, at the end of the day, my goal is not to convince them that all canola oil is good. I really don't care if people consume canola oil or not. If If nobody eats it, fine with me. My goal is that people have access to this information and that they know that this is out there and that they know that these results have been obtained. Once they have this information in front of them, then they can make their informed decision. But if they don't know that this exists, it's not an educated choice by by design. So uh, that's the only thing that I worry about. Let's finish with some rapid fire questions. And I appreciate these might be a little difficult for you, given how nuanced you are with it, with your research and, and your approach here. First one, is canola oil a better option than olive oil? Unclear. If, you, if, if I'm allowed to elaborate a little bit more, no clear evidence of, of superiority. I think one argument that I've heard is that there's more evidence behind olive oil. There's just been more research done. I think that's fine. So maybe our level of confidence is a little higher, but no clear 
no clear evidence of one being better than the other. So I think it's, uh, yeah, unclear. I've had viewers say, this is all fine, but I'd rather eat olive oil. I don't see a problem. I've had other, other viewers say, thanks for all this. I, I've, I eat canola oil and I like it. Fine too. Yeah. What about canola oil versus coconut oil? Haven't seen outcome data of a comparison. What I have seen is uh, randomized trials comparing them for lipids. And it's what you would expect. There is a, a trend towards higher LDL cholesterol on, on coconut oil. Uh, not every trial reaches statistical significance. Some do, some don't, but that's the direction of effect. And that's what I what's, what you would expect based on the composition of saturated fat in coconut oil. So I would say it depends on the amount you eat and depends on you, right? Your lipids and all that. If your lipids are great and you eat a little bit of coconut oil and you like it, I don't see a problem. But if you're loading up and your lipids are a mess, that is something where you could try to tweak. tweak. Uh, there's, there may be room for improvement. Right. This is where understanding your own levels and your over, and your own individual risk of cardiovascular disease, for example, is is important in kind of making that decision. Is canola oil a better option than soybean, corn, sunflower, cottonseed oils? These other seed oils that are richer in linoleic acid and less rich in monounsaturated fats. I also have not seen clear evidence of superiority either way. <clears throat> People seem to be more worried about these other seed oils. Maybe because of the linoleic acid content. <clears throat> and I haven't done this type of systematic, more or less exhaustive search for every one of those oils. So I would say my level of confidence is lower for those just because of I haven't looked as much. So for me right now, unclear. I don't have a strong position on it. Open to either direction or to a tie. Is it safe to pan fry, saute, and bake with canola oil? I think a good rule of thumb is to respect the smoke point. Uh, and that's for people who haven't heard of it. It's the temperature at which the oil starts to emit smoke. And it's a, an indicator of uh, stability to temperature exposure. And the smoke point for canola is around 200 Celsius centigrade. So give or take, actually for the cold press, it's a little lower and for the refined, it's higher, but somewhere in that range, 180 to 240. I think uh, sauteing is a good choice. I would avoid extreme temperatures and I would definitely avoid long, long exposures like hours of deep frying or hours and hours and hours in the oven at very high temperature. There's more uncertainty there, but sauteing with it, uh, you know, I really haven't seen evidence of, of concern. Is cold-pressed canola superior to regular refined heated canola? I feel like my answer to all the rapid-fire questions is the same, unclear. Uh, there's no, have not seen evidence of superiority. The trials looking at refined canola seem to, so, to show the same direction of effect. If there's a difference, it doesn't seem to be enormous, but I'm... I would not rule out that there is one. Like I said uh, a while back, I have not seen a, a trial comparing them both in the same trial head to head. So I'm completely open to the possibility that one is better, but I have not seen evidence of that. 
How much of the research that you came across would you say is funded by the canola industry? A small part. So we actually went through, because we knew people were going to ask. So we went through the trials and cohort studies. Every study that, that was cited, we went through and checked. And I think it was out of, uh, I think we covered 30 or so trial studies in general on the video. And I think three had funding from anything related. So not necessarily canola, but any seed oil or any vegetable oil related industry. And then I think two others had not funding, but the, the oil they used was donated by the manufacturer. So if we want to consider that a tie to industry, I think it was five out of 30. Uh, so a, min- a minority uh, in general with the, with this concern with funding, I think it's fine to, to, uh, to worry about funding, to ask about funding, to note the funding source. Um, what I would alert people to is someone replacing appeal to funding instead of scientific appraisal. That's a massive red flag. So if people are not showing you the evidence or dismissing entire bodies of evidence just because of funding, and sometimes I'm starting to see it's not even that they're saying it's funded by, it's a supposition of funding. It's my idea is this, all the evidence is against it, but big food, uh, big pharma. It's not even saying that this study is funded by, it's just financial interests. I don't trust anything. Um, I would be very wary of that. Uh, And then the last thing about funding is, just like we said for a number of the other concerns, the reproducibility, which is really the, the real currency of science. If you're looking at an individual trial, you're always gonna be wary, regardless of who funded it. By the time you're looking at an entire field, dozens of studies done by different researchers over 30 years and different institutions, some funded, some not, some are funded by industry, some funded by government, some funded by private, whatever, different sources, right? Different experimental approaches, and you see a concordance of evidence. That's where the confidence comes from. And when you have that map, the funding in five trials out of 30, it's easy to see that that's not going to change the the landscape fundamentally. Hypothetical here. You've reviewed all of the evidence on this topic or, or most of the the kind of... I tried, I tried. I'd say. Uh, yeah. Maybe maybe all is not the right word, but you've, you've spent more time than most people I know reading the evidence on canola. Let's just say that. Uh, oh. If you were forced to try and argue the position that canola oil is toxic with your understanding of the evidence how would how would you have to to look at the available evidence in order to do that and how would you argue that position to a to a group of scientists or to a group of lay people in the in the public convince me that canola oil is toxic after what you've heard i don't think i can uh, <laughs> basically the argument would have to be it would have to be not not mentioning all the human health data, not mentioning any of that, and then and then basically pointing to chemical structures and quantifications of compounds and oil, and then hypothesizing that that causes problems, but never checking the actual health effect of 
in human beings consuming it. Uh, because the, the balance of evidence of the, of the human health data is pretty overwhelming. The other way that you could do it is by, by hypothesizing a very convoluted hypothesis that all of these trials and all of these cohort studies have to be wrong. So all of the markers, uh, for some reason, it lowers lipids, it improves or leaves glucose metabolism where it was, it doesn't affect inflammation, it doesn't, but it still does something else. And the all the cohort studies fail to pick it up. You know, something convoluted like that, that kind of skirts all of the evidence. I wouldn't say that that's formally impossible. I would say that it's the likelihood is low. And uh, it's good to, to keep all possibilities in mind. But yeah, when the evidence for that comes, great. Until then, this is what we got. Do you think the fact that canola oil is often in the ingredient list of ultra-processed foods hurts it? You know, people see that and you know automatically throw it into the same bucket as you know refined sugars, other additives, and and sort of uh, assume that it's playing a role in the negative effects of that food and consuming a lot of ultra processed foods, and um, the assumption there being that it is inherently problematic. It's not the the kind of overall ultra processed food matrix. Yeah, I think it's definitely part of the argument that people hear and then part of the argument that they integrate. And it goes hand in hand with this idea that it's an unnatural food. And then I think what clinches it for a lot of people is the personal experience because they're told these foods are unnatural and poisonous. And look, don't trust me, just try it. Remove seed oils from your diet and see how you feel. And I have countless people saying this in the comments. All these trials are fine, but I cut out the seed oils and I got healthier and I feel better. And every time I've asked follow-up questions, what they actually did was they stopped eating potato chips and Pop-Tarts and they, start, they stopped eating the Burger King and they, start, they, start, they started cooking more at home. So that's not surprising that they got great health results. But the, this jump between... Because they're told this is what cutting seed oils, cutting out seed oils means is, is stop eating junk food. So I think they've become synonymous in people's minds. And that's why it's difficult to separate. Um, now, in practical terms, uh, to the extent that people are removing junk food from their diet and feeling better, I think that's that's all good, whatever they call it. Uh, but like I said before, my problem is the the clunky decision-making and the clunky thought process that's going to raise the risk that they make other bad decisions in other areas, that one I don't mind. Cutting out the seed oils, I don't see a problem. Cutting out the junk food, phenomenal. But then this sort of kind of uh, dirty uh, reasoning is going to permeate other decisions and, and is going to potentially cause other problems. So that's that's my only uh, concern. Right. The problem there being that when you're removing those foods, you're removing many elements from your diet, not just that seed oil. 
and the benefit of these studies that you're going through, at least the clinical trials and, and the cohort studies to, to an extent, are, are more interested at trying to isolate the effects of canola oil itself as opposed to the consumption of canola oil in ultra-processed foods or the effect of ultra-processed foods. Yeah, it's the fact that, that there's another thousand ingredients. It's the fact that they're probably reducing their overall caloric intake because that's reproducible when you go from, when you reduce ultra-processed foods, you cut out, you cut down on calories. That's very consistent. Um, yeah, I think those are the main confounders there. Oh, and, and also the fact that if, if this, this component of eating out it's possible that the preparation, if, if what they're doing at Burger King is frying the oil for six days without uh, replacing it, it's entirely possible that it's creating other problems there in terms of uh, uh, oxidation or degradation of the oil by the time you're eating it that doesn't reflect buying canola oil and using it at home. Or the production of trans fats. What are the, what are the major gaps in the, in the research looking at canola oil and human health, what studies would you like to see? Uh, more detail in terms of uh, types of canola oil. So the this question that we've, we've touched on a couple of times of the cold pressed versus, um, versus refined, I'd love to see trials comparing those. I'd love to see longer trials. Most of the trials are short duration. I'd love to see a one year or a couple of years uh, long trials, uh, giving people canola compared to other fats. Um, the, the, the duration, I would say, is the is the main caveat. The the washout uh, factor is interesting as well. The, the the wash in diet element is very interesting as well. So so if a trial like that had a, a several month wash in and then a a year or something like that of follow-up or several years if we're going for, for broke. That would be great. Love to see it. Um, yeah, those, those would be great. Those would really elevate the confidence or contradict the evidence we have right now. Jill, this has been great. I think you will have changed the perspective of many of the listeners next time they're walking down the, the cooking oil aisle in the grocery store, that's for sure. Remind folks how they can connect with you online. You mentioned a few of the other videos that you've done along with this canola oil video, of course. If people want to check those out and, and see those in full, where can we send them? Uh, so the, the YouTube channel is Nutrition Made Simple. You can find that on YouTube. And then if people want to connect on Twitter, my handle is at NutritionMadeS3. Beautiful. Thank you so much for coming back to join us. We really appreciate all your work. There you have it, friends. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did and want to stay up to date with future episodes, be sure to hit that subscribe button on YouTube and follow on Apple or Spotify. Finally, thank you for showing up and the effort that you're making to take control of your health. I look forward to hanging out with you again in the next episode.